Okay, you can turn over to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. Clearing up the confusion of Christmas. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of emotions that surround the Christmas season for a lot of different people. Some of them are good emotions. Some of them are bad emotions. Some of them are happy emotions. Some of them are sad emotions. But the Christmas season does something to our hearts. It warms our hearts. Or it could allow our heart to even grow colder. All you have to do is go in a store and look at the Christmas card section. You find everything from the secular cards, happy holidays, best wishes for the festive seasons, happy Hanukkah, all sorts of things. To peace on earth, Merry Christmas, joy to the world. And praising God at Christmas time for Jesus' birth is a time of celebration. It should be that way. We've seen that in our Christmas series this week. We've looked at Zechariah the, the, uh, the, the first week in Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Speaking of his own son. And then Mary, last week, we saw in chapter 1, uh, verses 46 to 47, where Mary sings a song and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Just that little phrase there, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, should prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Mary was not immaculate as some churches teach. She wasn't sinless. She needed a Savior just like everybody else because she cries out to God and she says she rejoices in God my Savior. If she was perfect, she wouldn't have needed a Savior. Just a side note. And also, as you read the Christmas story, you see the angels point out to the shepherds, I proclaim to you uh, a good and great joy in Luke chapter 2. Well, we come to a point here where the long wait is over. The Messiah is here. The Messiah is Savior. The Messiah is Lord. But I want to share with you this morning that the Christmas message is not a message of peace to everyone. The coming of Jesus in human flesh is not joyous to all mankind. The incarnation of the Lord God is not married to many. We see that even in our own day. Many do not recognize the baby in the manger as Christ the Lord. Some people follow the tradition of Ebenezer Scrooge. They refuse to celebrate Christmas at all. Hold up in their house with the dark, the lights turned dark. But most, I would say, are unlike the Scrooge. Most in our society, even atheistic as it is, <laughs> to some degree, take the opportunity this time of year to celebrate what they treasure. In some cases, it's drunkenness and debauchery. In other cases, it may be money and influence. In other cases, it may even be family and friendships. I'm here to tell you this morning that Christmas is not about a general sense of celebration. It's really not. 
It certainly is not about a celebration of sin. Neither is it a celebration generally of family and friendships. Charles Dickens notwithstanding. See, the long-awaited Messiah is born, and those who believe in him should celebrate. Some people get upset that Christmas is so commercialized today. Sure, it's commercialized. But to me, that just gives me more opportunity to share the message of Christ. The reason why we're doing this, the reason why people are going crazy in malls and shopping and putting lights on everything. What do you think? Somebody just woke up one day and said, hey, let's invent a holiday. No. Every time you date a check, you're acknowledging that Jesus Christ was a person who was born on this earth. The long-awaited Messiah is born. And those who believe in him should celebrate. Yet today in our passage, Luke follows his account of the celebration of the angels and the shepherds and everything at Jesus' birth with a report. And he gives a report of Mary and Joseph. And the report basically shows us, it kind of pulls a veil back a little bit, of the parents of the Messiah and shows us some of their confusion, even some of their consternation as to what's going on in this young child's life. They're confused, first of all, by the prophecy about him concerning Simeon. And then they're confused, secondly, by his own actions. And we're going to look at two of those today, both those things. From the start, Jesus was not what people expected him to be. See, Jesus Christ becomes a dividing line. I mean, praise God, his coming leads to the rising of many in Israel. Scripture says that. But his coming also leads to the fall of many. Look at what it says here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. It says, And when eight days were completed, as tradition, for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem and to present him to the Lord. A little baby dedication here. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. But to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, sounds familiar, and two young pigeons. Look at verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. It's another title of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It's funny how you read through the Christmas story and the Holy Spirit's one busy person. <laughs> he's, he's upon everybody, it seems. He's revealing things to everybody. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the Christ child to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And then we're going to look at what he says. 
verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and the Mary his mother. And behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, the Messiah is here. And from the start, he wasn't what people thought he would be. It says there that his coming leads to the rising of many in Israel. But notice the other side of that. It also leads to the fall of many. See, you have to understand the main message of Christmas. For some, there's no peace in that message. For some, there's no goodwill in that message. For some, there's no cause for celebration at Christmas for them. So I would argue with you, the message of Christmas is not celebrate. As that song says. But the message of Christmas is simply this. Receive the gift of God's salvation. Receive the gift of God's salvation. And then celebrate the giver. I said Jesus is a divider. I want to ask you this morning, which side are you on? Well, let's see how this passage makes this point for us. We're going to look at two things. First of all, a Savior for whom, and then secondly, a Son to whom. First of all, a Savior for whom. The first recorded visit of Jesus to the temple is in verses 22 to 38 of Luke chapter 2. We've already seen that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly. It tells us that in verse 6 of, of chapter 1. Now, we, we talked about this, and remember, this doesn't mean that they were perfect. It doesn't mean that they were sinless. But rather, when they did sin, they made within the sacrificial system the proper provision prescribed by the law to deal with their sin. They were devout. They kept a clear conscience before God. See, sometimes people look at Christians and go, oh, Christians aren't perfect. Well, who said we were? <laughs> if we were perfect, we definitely wouldn't need a Savior. I don't know about you, but I need a Savior every day. <laughs> they were devout. Mary and Joseph were similar. They were similar to Zachariah and Elizabeth. It says that at the time when, really, when many ignored the law, they didn't do what was prescribed by the law. Others may have lived up to it outwardly, but violated it inwardly. Jesus addressed that. As we've studied through Matthew, the hypocrites of his day, the religious hypocrites. Well, this couple, Mary and Joseph, lived by the law. They were devout. And you see evidence to that in verses 22 to 24. It said that Mary needed to be purified according to the law after giving birth. 
And along with that, Joseph probably even had contact with the blood during the birth, so even he needed to probably be purified at some point. And also, the law required that every firstborn needed to be redeemed according to the law, you might say. It seems as if Mary and Joseph were dedicating Jesus in a special way to God, just like Hannah did with Samuel. That's why we dedicate our our young children to the Lord after their birth. It's a biblical thing to do. So Mary and Joseph intend to accomplish all three of these purposes with one trip to the temple. They made good use of their resources. Sometimes, don't you hate that when you go to the store and you, you get what you need and you come back and then it's like, ah, oh, I forgot this and you got to go back again. And then, you know, you do that three or four times and you're thinking, man, I spent more on gas and the whole of the groceries. Well, they were being good stewards of the resources. They said, you know, we're going to do all three of these things in one trip. And so they made the trip to the temple. And when they entered the temple, look at Simeon's reaction to the Messiah. They meet this this righteous, devout person. He's an old man at this point, Simeon, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. He's heard the prophecies. He knows the Messiah is coming. Simeon is not only righteous and devout, but it tells us there in the text that the Holy Spirit is upon him. The Spirit has revealed to him that he would see this long-awaited Messiah before he died. What an incredible thing. We were talking the other day, and, and uh, we were driving back from Grass Valley, and, and my wife said, I hope we live long enough to see our grandchildren get married. And I thought, wow, that would be neat. And I thought for a second, well, I guess it depends who they're marrying, but yeah, it would still be neat. <laughs> Trust the Lord with that one, I guess. But see, he was waiting to see the Messiah, and God said, hey, you're, hang in there, Simeon. You're going to see him. Your eyes are going to fall upon the long-awaited Messiah before you die. And when his eyes fell on that infant Christ, that infant baby, the Spirit let him know, this is it. This is the one you've waited for. And so, Simeon, can you imagine? Here's Mary and Joseph. They don't know this man. They just walk in the temple. They're going to dedicate the baby. And this old man runs up to him and says, wow, this is him. And and grabs the baby from Mary's arms, probably much to their surprise. And he begins to praise God, and he says, now I'm ready to die. (laughs) Now I can die after I've seen your baby. And they're probably sitting there going, okay, what's going on here? Well, look at Mary and Joseph's response in verse 33. And then we'll look at what actually Simeon said to them. It says in verse 33, that the couple marveled at what he said. That Greek word translated marvel, it's the same word that we encountered last uh, a couple weeks ago in verse 18 when it says they wondered. It refers to even those shepherds who heard the report of all that happened. It means that you, 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 you're kind of caught by surprise. You're deeply disturbed about something. And here, Mary and Joseph are are definitely surprised, and they're even disturbed. And why? Because Simeon says to them, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before all peoples. See, Jesus is that salvation which he has seen. 
He's the only salvation there is, beloved. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. So if you're out there thinking that you're going to, you know, uh, play the prices right and, well, I'm going to take the Savior behind door two or day door one or whatever, it doesn't work that way. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. But see, this, this Jesus is not just a tiny baby which has been in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem. It says there that he was prepared before all peoples. In Psalm 23, 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think of Jesus as a feast. He's a Christmas dinner, if you like. He referred to himself that way a lot of times. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And then when he was speaking of bread, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. We celebrated communion last week. We talked about that. So who did God prepare this feast of Jesus for? God prepared the feast, it says, before all peoples, for all nations. He set a table in front of everyone. All peoples. Every people group is not only invited, every people group will attend. Whatever race, whatever customs, whatever majority religion, however many centuries they've been rejecting the gospel, someone from that people group will find salvation in Christ Jesus. Because it says every people group will feast on him. This is the message from the Old Testament in Psalm 67.3. It says, the peoples must praise you. All the peoples must praise you. And for the most part, Jews, even devout Jews like Mary and Joseph, they missed it. They missed that truth. They saw the Messiah as coming to help them. They know other nations were involved somehow. They know that other nations would recognize that they were truly God's people, but they didn't see the Jewish Messiah as coming to save all peoples. They didn't see that at all. So here's Simeon presenting this idea, and it must have been confusing, and it disturbed them within their hearts. But Simeon doesn't stop with that statement. In verse 32, he calls that salvation, Jesus himself, he calls him a light. He says, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Where Gentiles there can even mean just nations in general doesn't necessarily mean non-Jewish people. It just means nations in general. All these nations are walking in darkness. And they desperately need the light of the revelation of who God is. That's the only way you're ever saved, is if God gives you that revelation of who He is. It's not like you just sit down one day and figure it out for yourself. God says that He draws you to Himself. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith and your trust in Christ as your Savior. Don't think you can walk out of here and go figure it out. You have to fall desperately before a holy God and say, God, save me. I can't save myself. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I fail every time. You need to depend fully and wholly on God as your Savior. He explains how Jesus is a light in two ways. First of all, he says, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. Like I said, it means all groups of people. And then secondly, he says, Jesus is also a light for the glory of God's people, Israel. See, this is what Mary and Joseph expected. Yeah, it's all about Israel. It's all about the Jewish people. 
This is what they and all true believers within Israel long for, the Messiah. The Messiah will come and will show those who long for his appearing that they were right and they'll be glorified. God will show that he has not forsaken them. Despite the centuries of oppression, despite the the years of silence, 400 and some years, the prophets were silent up to this point. So the Messiah serving as a light to show the glory of true Israel is not a surprise to Mary and Joseph. But Israel, and in particular Jesus himself, being God's chosen means of blessing all nations, all people groups with salvation. That was not expected, even by devout Jews. And the idea surprised the the, the parents of Jesus. And Simeon, basically, in effect there in his words, he said, Mary, this son of yours is not only the Messiah who will redeem Israel. We expect that. But he will also save all peoples, even those who have oppressed Israel. And so by this time, Mary's head must have just been swimming with questions. And Simeon directs his words to her personally. And look at what he says in verses 34 and 35. He says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He speaks two different thoughts here. The ESV and the, the King James are helpful. They put those, those thoughts in parentheses part of them. Well, let's look what's outside the parentheses first. Let's consider first what comes before and after the parentheses, and then we'll look at what's within those parentheses if you have those in your Bible. See, some within Israel will rise. He says that first when they encounter this child. They will rise. Their hearts will be revealed showing that they truly will follow after God, that they truly love and they respect and they love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the God, and they they welcome the Savior who was promised, the Messiah. They may be confused. They may not fully understand everything. But they'll love Jesus' appearing. That's what it says. Well, there's another group. Those who won't rise. It says that they will stumble over him or they will fall, the Bible says. See, their hearts will be revealed as well. And it will show simply the fact that they're opposed to God. No matter what their official title may be. And this happened in Jesus' own day. The high priest, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, all those folks were opposed to him as the Messiah. They stumbled over him. Their hearts were shown to be against God, not for God. Even though they had all the trappings of the religious garb and and, and doing all their their, their practice, religious practices and everything, God reveals the heart. He's not so much concerned what's going on on the outside. He's concerned more with what's on the inside. Anybody can fake it. And at the same time, some long for his appearing 
And some others, even, I've even heard pastors at times mock Christ, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. See, Jesus himself will tell the story of his separating the sheep from the goats on the last day. And it's important to remember that all those, both the sheep and the goats, are professing believers. They're, they're, they're people who are professing Jesus, the Christ. And he's not going to wait until the last day to conduct such a separation. He reveals the thoughts of our hearts even today. In verses 36 to 38, adds to this point, Anna who's like Simeon, is devout and looking forward to the Messiah. Look at verse 38. After seeing Jesus, she speaks of him, and she says, all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The clear implication is while some are waiting for this redemption, others are not. She doesn't even speak to them. See, you have to understand, Jesus ultimately divides people into two groups. This isn't rocket science. This is very simple. Those who long for him, those who love him before they see him, who would look upon him, seeing him, and the other group is those who don't. Those who love Jesus and those who don't. When he says there, Jesus is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel. Simeon and Anna both bring out this point. But I don't think this idea surprises Mary. For she had something like this in her own song in chapter 1, in verse 50. Look at what she says in verse 50 of chapter 1, Luke. She says, his mercy is for those who what? Who fear him. And so his mercy must be not on those who don't fear him. Or Luke 51, 151. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. For the proud set themselves up in opposition to him. And even verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, for he is the only ultimate power. See, Mary knew the Old Testament well enough that the proud, the mighty within Israel would not follow the Messiah. They weren't even looking for him. And ultimately, he would overthrow them. She knew that only a remnant, only those who truly believed, would follow the coming king. So this isn't the idea that surprises Mary. She's okay with that. She understands that. What disturbs her, what, what makes her marvel, what really pierces her heart is what's found within the parentheses. When he says in verse 35, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. See, this is the first hint, beloved, that being the mother of the Messiah is going to bring some pain. She's already experienced pain to some degree. Think about it. She's experienced pain and inconvenience. We've talked about this in the previous messages. She became pregnant before she was married. That's a little bit of an inconvenience. Her plans for her life were truly turned upside down. She had to make a a journey for several days while she was pregnant. She gave birth in far from ideal circumstances. 
But see, Simeon here, he understands because the Spirit's revealed this to him, but he says she needs to know that there's more pain on the way. Simeon uncovers a deeper pain, a much more piercing sorrow. Why do you think that is? I mean, she's the mother of the Messiah, for goodness sake. His kingdom, it says there, is going to last forever. All generations are going to call her blessed. Where's the pain coming from? Stop and think, isn't this pain and this inconvenience that she's going through right now the cost? You mean there's going to be more cost ahead, Simeon? And the Holy Spirit allows Simeon to get a glimpse of the suffering of Mary, the mother of the Messiah, and what she's going to go through when her own son is rejected by the religious leaders and her own son is cruelly, viciously executed. This shows us that there's going to be a major delay between his incarnation and the time when all will bow before her son. She's confused. She's like, what's going on? I thought this was just going to be a snapshot kind of a thing. What's happening? That's the confusion of Christmas. Jesus comes as king, but you know what? He also comes to divide. There's cause for celebration for those who put their faith, their trust in Christ, but there's no cause for celebration at Christmas for those who willfully refuse to submit to him. Although those who long for his appearing should celebrate his birth, even for them, there's a reason for sober judgment during that time. For until he comes again, we like Mary even, the Bible says that we're going to suffer. If we follow after Christ, we're going we're to suffer. We may lose possessions. We may even lose our lives. We may give up careers. We may lose respect. So we have to ask each other and ask ourselves, do we count all else as rubbish, as garbage, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him? Is that what's in our heart? Or is the materialism of our world creeping in and we're losing our focus? See, he must be your treasure. He must be more valuable to you than anything else, period. You can't take a piece of the Messiah. You can't have Jesus be your Savior, but he's not going to be your Lord. That's a lie from the pit of hell. So this infant is a Savior for whom? Well, he's a Savior for those Jews who long for his appearing, who love God with all their hearts. He's a Savior for those from every tribe, every tongue, every people who long for him who set their agenda aside and willfully and, and willingly confess their sins before a holy God and cry out for a Savior. The offer is to feast on Him. And that offer still stands today. The Bible says that we should love Him, that we should long for Him, that we should treasure Him. And truly, He'll be your Savior. He's a son to whom? If you turn over to verse 41 of Luke 2, we see the second time 
second recorded visit of Jesus to the temple. Mary and Joseph eventually return to Nazareth when Jesus grows in physical strength and he's filled with God's wisdom and God's grace, it says. And in verse 41, we see the missing son. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So the occasion is they went up there to celebrate this, this Passover. Jesus is 12 years of age. The next scene here basically shows us what happens. Joseph doesn't go alone. He takes his whole family with him. Well, look at what happens in verse 43. We see this, this oversight, mere oversight. You lose the, the Messiah. <laughs> when they had finished the days and they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph did not know it. But supposing to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now when it was the day after three days, they found him in the temple. Slight oversight there, Mary and Joseph. You leave the Savior at 12 in a hustling, bustling city. But see, this is all part of God's plan. All part of God's plan. He's left behind by his parents, accidentally as it was. And after the Passover concludes, the caravan begins. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph. You know, there was a whole caravan of people that went. And so Jesus probably had friends that he was playing with, and they thought, oh, he's over at the neighbor's van or caravan or whatever. He's traveling with them today. That's fine. Let's go. And they travel a full day's journey. And then they look around probably dinner time, going, hey, where's Jesus? Can you imagine as a parent the panic that would, would be stricken in your heart as you lose one of your children? I mean, I've heard stories of parents who've actually got on planes and took off and landed. And where, where's Joey? I mean, can you imagine taking our grandkids to Disney World? I guarantee you, man, there's three of them, but there's also going to be four of us. <laughs> Got to keep an eye on them. And that evening, he's nowhere to be found. And they left him in Jerusalem. And they finally, they, they go back. They travel all the way back, probably just the two of them. And they find him, the outcome there in verse 46 and 47, they find him in the temple. They don't find him when they get back. They actually got to wait. <laughs> Just prolongs it even more. They search for him the next day, and finally they find him in the, the temple sitting among the teachers. He's 12 years old. He's listening. He's questioning. And those who are hearing him speak are just purely amazed at his understanding. And in verse 48, it shows us here that Mary and Joseph are just dumbfounded. They're just purely, they, they, they can't understand this. So when they saw him, they were amazed, it says, and his mother said to him, and here you see the difference between the missing son and all of a sudden he becomes the messianic son. 
She's no longer just talking to her son. She's talking to the Messiah. Verse 48, she says, kind of rebukes him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. We've been looking all over the place for you. Why would you do such a thing? Why did you treat us this way? And Jesus has to give her a little bit of a, a reminder of who he is in verse 49. And he said to them, not in a disrespectful way, very respectful, but he had to clear up some things, clear up some of the confusion. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they just misunderstand him. The misunderstood son, they can't even comprehend what he's saying. What are you talking about? It says in verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They just stood there scratching their heads. Unless you think Jesus is being disobedient or Jesus is being disrespectful, look at verse 51 because it points out, brings them right back to him being their son. It says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? What's it say? Subject to them. But his mother kept all these things, pondered all these things in her heart. See, Jesus gives them just a glimpse of who he is. His actions tell Mary and Joseph, I love you and I respect you. I'll always be your son. I'll always serve you as your son. But you know what? I have another calling. God has another plan for me. I was sent here for a purpose. I must be about my father's business. And you think of, of you know, the mother. I mean, do you feel this pain now? I mean, that's really what he's saying to Mary. Do you understand the pain you're going through? When I was missing, do you understand that pain, Mary? It's not my intention to give you that pain, but that pain is going to come because I have a father's plan. And I will going to, our relationship is going to result in greater pain than even this. And this is the first of many times that I'm going to confuse you, mother. So remember what you've learned. A sword is going to pierce your own soul. But I am the son of the Most High. I am the King of Kings. My reign will never end. You need to trust me in this, mother. I know what I must do. For your good and also for God's glory, because that's the purpose I was sent here. See, Mary's problem, and even Joseph's problem, was that she had expectations for the Messiah. She had expectations concerning her own son. She wouldn't be a good mother if she didn't. And you know what? Jesus didn't live up to her expectations, did he? He had his own plan. He had his own agenda. One given to him by a higher power, the Father. And she was just dumbfounded. Let me ask you this. What do you expect Jesus to do? How do you expect him to relate to you? I want to tell you, just from years of walking with the Lord, whatever you expect him to do, he does just the opposite. 
Whatever you expect him to act like, he'll act just the opposite. Whatever plans you may have, with almost certainty, I can tell you Jesus somehow is going to tweak, he's going to change those plans. If you would have grabbed me eight years ago and said, Steve, you know what, eight years from now, your daughter's going to be married and you're going to have three grandkids. I would have said, you know what, you are nuts. You are, you have absolutely lost your mind. I won't even be 50. And I'm going to have three grandkids? Come on, reality check. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Sometimes his plans and his purpose don't fit into ours. That's where we need to yield. That's where we need to submit. See, the Christ of Christmas confuses and astounds us both at the same time. It confounds our expectations. The Christ of Christmas challenges us, it stretches us, it molds us, it even breaks us at times. But see, he is the feast that's set before us. He is the ultimate joy. His incarnation should lead to a joyous, God-honoring celebration among his people. Because Christ is born. The Savior is here. He is the Lord. I want to ask you this morning, who is he to you? Who is he to you? I don't want you to be fooled by the pictures of a baby Jesus. The tiny baby in the mother's arms seems a threat to no one. Everybody loves a baby. But remember, the Christ of Christmas is appointed both for the falling and rising of many. The Christ of Christmas reveals the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. The Christ of Christmas divides all of us into two people groups, those who treasure him and those who oppose him. There's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, he's just sitting on the fence. There is no fence. Either you're for Christ or you're against Christ. There's, there, there's no middle ground. He comes to save his people. But I want to tell you this morning that He's your Savior only on His terms. And His terms are everything. His terms are all your possessions, all your future plans, all your family. He wants everything. The Bible says that you must love Him with all your heart. You must trust Him with all of your life. Do you trust Him this morning? Do you love Him? Are you willing to follow him? No matter how confusing it may be, as Mary and Joseph were willing to follow him through their confusion, through the crazy route that he took them on. The Christ of Christmas, beloved, is God's salvation for you. The Christ of Christmas is a light and revelation to all peoples, including you. The Christ of Christmas is worth more than everything you own now or ever could own in this world. He's worth more than all of your hopes and all of your dreams. 
I pray this morning that you will take him, that you'll confess your sinfulness before a holy God. You'll confess even your lack of love for him. Confess your confusion about all this. Confess your mixed desires. And that you will repent. And that you will find your salvation in the Christ of Christmas this year. So that you can truly, truly rejoice. And those words, Merry Christmas, mean so much more when you are in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears. Lord, sometimes it's easy to get sidetracked this time of year with all the emotions and all the activities, all the parties, the company dinners and family get-togethers. Lord, all of that can crowd out the true message of Christmas, and it's not just a general celebration. The true message of Christmas is that God saw fit before even time began to put His plan for the salvation of mankind into action in offering His Son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on a cruel cross for the sins of the world, for the sins of all who put their faith, their trust in Him, that they could be redeemed, that they could be saved through Christ. pray that we would take that message, that we would internalize it, that we would share it with those around us. If you're here this morning, you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ. It's just that simple. It's crying out to God. God, save me. I may not understand everything, but God, save me. I know I can't save myself. I want to live for you. I want to do what you require of me. I want you to change my heart, change my life. Bring me into Christ. Draw me to yourself. That's a prayer that God will answer. If you pray it humbly, if you pray it from your heart, I guarantee you pray that prayer. This will be the most magnificent Christmas you've ever celebrated. Thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen.